Hi, I'm Josh Hamilton. And I'm Joe Skinner. And this is the American Masters Podcast, where we have conversations with the people who change us. Today, we talk to Academy Award-winning actress and documentary filmmaker, Lee Grant. Documentaries tear open people's lives. Those are moments in time that are the truth. And I had such a connection with what they were going through. They were all on the parts of people who couldn't speak for themselves, or I couldn't speak for myself. You may know Lee Grant from her Academy Award-winning turn in the 1975 Hal Ashby film, Shampoo, or from her starring role alongside Sidney Poitier in the 1967 film, In the Heat of the Night, or one of my personal favorites, her Academy Award-nominated performance in Hal Ashby's first film, The Landlord. But outside of her successful career as an actress, Lee Grant found herself at the center of a political whirlwind at the height of the McCarthy era. In 1947, the House Un-American Activities Committee introduced the Hollywood Blacklist in an effort to counter what was seen as a growing communist threat in America. In 1951, Lee Grant was called to testify in front of the committee against her husband at the time, playwright Arnold Manoff. Grant refused to testify and as a result, was blacklisted from the age of 23 to 36 and was unable to find meaningful work in Hollywood for years. This origin story set the stage for a second career as a documentary filmmaker. She covered topics rarely seen explored before, like 1985's What Sex Am I?, a film that looks at the trans experience in 1980s America. Other documentaries like Women on Trial, The Wilmar Eight, When Women Kill, and Battered also explored women's and gender issues. This work culminated in an Academy Award for Best Documentary with 1986's critique of Reaganomics, Down and Out in America. Lee Grant has been able to turn moments of tragedy from her life into meaningful explorations on aging, injustice, and loyalty. We were lucky to have Lee's close colleague, Susan Lacey, the creator of American Masters, mine these themes in an interview at Lee Grant's home right here in New York. We begin by hearing an incident from Lee's early childhood, that would come to define the life of a person always in the pursuit of justice. I was raised on the Upper West Side, 148th Street and Riverside Drive. And I remember when I went to a a bigger school on 135th Street and Convent Avenue, and my first day there, the boy next to me in the back row was pushing a pencil into his zipper, into his pee-pee. And so I went up to the teacher and I said, that's what he did. And the next day when I went to school, he wasn't there anymore. And so the next day, these two girls, they were throwing erasers around. Teacher came in and said, who was throwing erasers? Nobody said anything. Yes, Lyova, yes, Lyova. Those two girls were throwing erasers. We are going to get you. They were going down the stairs to the schoolyard. This is my second day in grammar school, like fourth grade, something like that. We're going to get you. Come on. Come on. What did I do? What did I do? I told the truth the first day. I told the truth the second day. So why is everybody angry at me? And that was my biggest second lesson. It's interesting. I mean, it's not. You don't turn anybody in. You don't turn anybody in. And that's part of the blood and bone of the experience I went through. Which, of course, played itself out later very much in life. Absolutely. I, I think something built into me 
has a sense of they're doing something to that person that's wrong. I, I wrote about it when I was up on Broadway once and I saw a man stalking a woman right on 148th Street and Broadway. And there was a circle of people around them watching him do that. And a bus came by and she tried to get on the bus and the bus driver closed the door on her. And I ran to get a policeman who was like up a block on Broadway. And I brought him back and it had been dispersed. And I said, you have to find her, he's going to kill her. And he said, no, little girl, they're, they're in a bar now, you know, sitting at a table around each other. The sense of people watching this, the sense of, a, of it disappearing and God knows what happened to her, was so ingrained in me. The first day that I went to school, when school was on 145th Street and Broadway, the first day I went to school, there was, a, his name was Foster, there was a black kid in our class. And the teacher punished him by having him walk around the back of the class, go to the front, and then she'd say, put your hand out, <clears throat> she'd hit it with a ruler. My first day in school, that's what I saw. And so the sense of you treat certain people this way and others you don't, the sense of injustice became so strong in me and what I saw. You are a very interesting dichotomy. Yes, you really truly are. Yeah. I mean, a life almost at odds. Your title of your book is Say Yes to Everything. You seized every opportunity that there was out there, and yet, at times, you were really crippled with fear. And still am. Which we'll talk a little bit more about, but I, I want you to tell me why you started your book with the dream that you started it with. You know, I was sitting there at the kitchen table. I had to have been, like, seven. And suddenly, I remembered and I woke up from this dream where I could fly and I wanted to try it out. And I was in my pajamas and I got out of the bed and there's a over the radiator casing that you can climb on. And so I climbed on, on the casing, I raised the shade and the window and I stood on the radiator ready to throw myself into the air to fly as I had in the dream. And just suddenly then, these birds flew past me and hit the basement below. And I realized that I wouldn't fly, that I would fall. And so I closed the window and it was just when my mother came in, I understood that I'm a danger to myself. I understood that I had to see between the reality and the dreams. And so it was a warning. You made a lot of mistakes on your, what, along the way. But you seem to be, have been very aware of the lessons you learned from each mistake. Now, is that in hindsight or was that at the time? Uh, for example, uh, when you first just turned into a beauty, powerful beauty, and you first recognized your power, the power you had because of your beauty, and you misused that for a while. Well, I think that was adolescence, where I was in camp, 
I think it, it started when I was 12 or 13, and I suddenly had the power. It was a boys and girls camp, and all I thought about were boys. Uh, to flirt, to conquer, to dance with, to attract, to take them away from their girlfriends. It was like a life ambition. It suddenly became this huge power. And I couldn't get over myself. You know, I'd look in the mirror and say, is that really me? You know, look. I'd run down to, to where my grandmother was and say, Grandma, look at me. I'm so beautiful. Look, do you see how blue my eyes are? Look, look at my hair. How did, how did this happen? And because I was such a pudgy kid, you know, and I was the pudgiest in the, in the dance class, you know, with those long, tall Nora Kay dance. Nora Kay was in my ballet class. I always admired the beauties. I never thought I could be one. You know, so it was endless mirror, endless. Oh, gosh, use it, use it. I remember walking in, I must have been 14, into the girls' camp, into a bunk of seniors, saying to them, I can take any of your boyfriends away from you. Having no sense of anything but power, and I didn't get away with it. The whole camp turned on me. When I was in the dining hall, it was like the next day or the day after that, and I realized that I was the most unpopular girl in the room. And I started to cry. I ran out of the dining hall up to the bunk. And it was a very good lesson that I needed. And I don't know what it was rebellion against. It seemed to me that they could not control me, either in the bad things that I did or in the good things that I did. And that my whole focus at a certain point was that boys like me. That was the signature of being a successful girl, that I wipe away any competition and that boys are attracted to me. I'm not so attracted to you. I'm not attracted. I just want you to be attracted to me. So when did that begin to change? Well, when I went to the neighborhood playhouse, I was given an exercise by Sandy Meisner, who is one of the great teachers from the group theater. And he set me up with a boy in the class. And he gave us both an objective. His objective was to stay, and my objective was to get rid of him. He had no chance. There was this sudden rage. I was pulling him. I was pushing him. I was screaming. All of the flirty, dirty, 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 dirty things were wiped away by this torrent of anger. And something, some strength, the strength that I never saw before, the strength that I never had a hold of, the strength that I was never in touch with, was coming out of me and aimed at this poor boy who didn't know what to do because I was attacking him physically and pushing him out of the room. 
And it was making friends with a part of myself that I'd never met before. This was power. I found my holy grail. Something in me and the art had come together, and I was whole. I, I didn't have that terrible need to steal other people's boyfriends. I didn't have any interest in that. It was finished. It was over. And everything that I wanted to do had to do with transformation, transforming myself into this, transforming myself, and taking that ride, that journey. And that led you to Broadway and the detective story in 1950. How did that come about? The writer who wrote Detective Story came out of the group theater. Now, during the time that I was at the neighborhood playhouse, I was asked to bring in a character. And so I was sitting on the bus and I heard these girls behind me talking like that and looking out the window and having that kind of a talk and what do you think you're going to do? I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. And so I brought it into class and then later, uh, Henry Fonda saw me in a play, and he recommended me to this great playwright and the, the author of Detective Story, Sidney Kingsley. And I brought this character, and he asked me to read The Girl in it. And then when it, it was made into a movie not too long after the play, or how long did it take for a, that? About a year. Yeah. In 1952, I was nominated for an Oscar in detective story, and I couldn't work in television or film. I was blacklisted. So let's go back to how you got blacklisted to begin with. You had been essentially apolitical. I mean, you were not political. You weren't involved. You were not a member of the Communist Party. I guess you had married Arnie by now. Uh, and you are married to a communist, and you have a lot of communist friends. Did someone name you, and that's how you got Blacklisted? How did you get blacklisted? Well, I took this play that Arnie wrote, and one of the people in the play was, was J. Edward Bromberg, Joe Bromberg, famous character actor from the group theater. We were in stock together, and we were in this play together. This play did not have a long life, the play that Arnie wrote. And so he said to me, while we were in the wings doing All You Need Is One Good Break, that he was being called up in front of the committee. This is way, you know, I had just gone from detective story to this play. And I said, what committee? He said, the Un-American Activities Committee. And he said, and I was up before, my heart is bad. You know, this is, I can't work in movies or, or television. This is the only thing I can do. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm afraid I'm gonna die. And shortly after that, when the play, our play closed, he went to London to open in another play, had a very successful uh, reviews, and died of a heart attack. And this was very shortly after the play that we were in together, the one after Detective Story, closed. And people were setting up a memorial for Joe Bromberg at the Edison Hotel. And I was asked, as a young actress, 21, something like that, to say 
you know, because all the other people who were talking were people who knew him through the group theater. Kazan was there. Odette's was there. You know, all of these incredibly hefty artists. Um, as, a, as a young person who, who knew him last, would I say something? And so I, when it was my turn to speak, I said that he told me he'd been called in front of the Un-American Activities Committee and he was afraid that it would kill him. And it did. And the next day I was at an actor's equity meeting and somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, you made the list. And so the day after I had said that at his memorial, I was on the blacklist. And the blacklist appeared in a journal called Red Channels, correct? Yeah. Red Channels, uh, it became a, a kind of money-making little effort. Any actor who had veered, you know, you didn't have to be a communist, you just had to do what I did with Romberg, and, would be in Red Channels. So a lot of actors had to give them $100 and get up in front of this giant union because the attendance there was like thousands and say, I'm sorry, I said what I did. I'm a loyal American and please forgive me, let me work again. Shameful. At Joe Bromberg's memorial, Odette's got up and made this rousing speech. And what happened then, a week later? Well, I mean, Odette's was the king. I mean, the greatest, one of the greatest writers we've ever had. And he had been part of establishing the group theater, which Joe was a part of. And he made a speech at that memorial, which sent all of us, and there had to be thousands of people there, you know, raying and applauding and yay for Odette's, we will fight them to the finish. And a week later, Odette's was called into the committee. He gave names. Your heart breaks. The people who gave names were them, and the people who didn't were us. So it was them and us. And what was the question they would ask? Are you now, or have you ever been a member of the no, Communist Party? No, name who was at your Communist meetings. You know, it, I refuse to answer on the basis of my Fifth Amendment rights. Or, yes, I was. Did you attend meetings with other people? Yes, I did. Who was there? Just that simple. And some people did it, and some people didn't. And some people didn't. Some people worked. But we carried around, you know, people who, who did name, other than Kazan, who really hated the Communist Party. It, he, he felt it was telling him what to do, and, and he and Arthur Miller were so close, and he had directed, you know, every great play that Arthur Miller had written, and now suddenly Kazan gave names, and Arthur Miller and he were not talking to each other. I mean, it was friendships cut in half by who gave the committee names and who took the Fifth Amendment and refused to. So lives were just changed and over and friendships, great friendships were torn apart. The blacklist enters 
so many stories of people we've made films about at American Masters. It's a thread. It's very, very interesting. From Paul Robeson to, believe it or not, Lucille Ball. I do want to talk about Kazan for a moment. After Detective Story, you did Camino Real with Kazan, and that was a huge opportunity, but you quit. When you look back on that, do you regret that you didn't work with Kazan? Well, we, we stopped talking. After he named names, I was part of the people on one side. And don't forget, I was at the actor's studio. He was at the actor's studio. I mean, I wouldn't talk to him in the hall. He gave names and was proud of it and, t and tried to get as many people as he could. I'm sure he got Strasburg and Paula Strasburg to name names as they did alongside with him. And he, that was on the other side for me. That was the enemy. Well, that leads me to ask you, this, I mean, I, I know that there's a good story about you and when Kazan was given his honorary Oscar and there were many people who opposed it and who refused to stand up and applaud him and sat in their seats with their hands, you know, folded, even though Marty Scorsese and Robert De Niro accompanied him onto the stage. And what was your feeling about that? Where were I you on so, that? I was so conflicted. And it, it hurt me, my conscience hurt me. On the one hand, he made it good to name names. He was the one person I could even think of who made it a good thing to turn in his friends. And on the other hand, he was the most effective and fascinating and important and left-leaning artist that we've ever had. He is a complicated man. You were able to separate the work from the actions yeah. of this man. Yeah. You know? yeah. And a lot of people couldn't. No, and, and he, was, he was ambitious. I mean, would he be happy to just stay on Broadway? He couldn't work in film if he didn't name names. He could not work in film if he didn't name names or go abroad. And he's an American director, the best American director maybe ever. So he did it. He, he said, it. this is my life. I'm an artist. I want to make films. I come from the group theater. That's what I know. I'm going to stunt my talent because I don't give these names people who are already blacklisted anyway. Yeah, you made a very different choice. When you had the chance to get off the blacklist, if you would simply name Arnie Manoff, your husband, you would, if you refused to do it, even though you knew it would get you off the blacklist. Oh, Susan. You know, and this was suggested to me. Everybody at that time, the time you're talking about, everybody was off the blacklist. There were like three people left on the blacklist yeah. at this point. Morris Karnofsky and me and somebody else, I don't know. This very, very big lawyer, Max Campbellman, asked me to come up to Washington, and I did. And he said, they won't let you off the blacklist unless you name your husband, Arnie, former husband. I wasn't with him anymore. I just, I couldn't believe that that was the condition for me to name the man had been married to, that I had a daughter with, and that would allow me to work again. I was so 
sad and angry. And I said to him, I said, well, you know, I could work. I could also, you know, spend the rest of my life in an insane asylum for not being able to live with a person who in order to do a job has to turn in a man she was married to. I mean, you know, you know, maybe that would be something I could live with or maybe not. Or maybe that's not something that a person can live with. This was 1964. This was 1964. So it had been 12 years that I'd been on the blacklist. And everybody in the networks wanted me. They wanted me to work. It was still the un-American. I, I mean, they were holding on to me like, you know, that they, they had somebody they could really get to. And so Max said, Somebody on the committee wanted a favor from him, and he said, only if you let Lee Grant go. And a letter came the next day. Uh, this is an official thing that says that you were whatever, 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 like a certificate. And the final death knoll into the, uh, into the blacklist ultimately was a very brave guy who got up and said, have you no shame? and then Edward R. Murrow exposed McCarthy for who he was, and that was sort of the end. You got off the blacklist, you're now 36 years old. As you said in your book, acting is about taking risks, and risks don't always work so well in life. But you climbed out of where you were. You climbed out of that cage. Yes, And you I did. made an amazing comeback and redefined your talents as, and went into new territories. Now, Electra is a Greek play. It was from that play that I was offered Peyton Place. So I left Joe Papp to go to Hollywood, to go to Malibu, and it was the beginning of my next life. So now you're in a hit series that's got more people tuning into it every night than anybody could imagine today, and you became part of that family. Yeah. But you also, in your book, described that even though you had these conflicting feelings about leaving the stage, you also, in some way, it was kind of, kind of an act of revenge, getting oh, back at the blacklist. Yes. Talk about that. Oh, yes. I mean, <laughs> Peyton Place was on three times a week, and it, everybody in America watched it three times a week. It was like going from obscurity to being the most, you know, popular. It, it was insane. And I moved to Malibu. I wasn't in Hollywood. I wasn't in, I was in Malibu. And that was a different place to be in. I was in the colony. It was like, how did I end up here? It was such an opposite to the life that I had been living before, the freedom. The only thing that I was scared of was them finding ab about how old I was. <laughs> you know, That's a theme that runs through your life, <laughs> too. <laughs> finding out how old I was because I could really work here and I had had my face done, you know, so I looked, you know, really good and like about 10 years younger or five or whatever than, 
than I was. I photographed, you know, beautifully. So, so uh, I, I was scared that they would, you know, congratulate me on my birthdays, and I'd talk to the publicity guys about not giving me birthday greetings. And, and then uh, they opened the Actors Studio in Santa Monica. And so I got to speak to Mayor Yorty about giving us the actor studio rent-free, and I said, and also they made a mistake on my driver's license. You know, I'm five <laughs> years younger than on my driver's license. Could you have that changed for me? <laughs> so <laughs> Mayor Yorty issued me a new driver's license. So I mean, I was so crazed. Now that I had a career, and my child was mine and in school, and there was some opportunity in front of me, you know, I just wanted to make sure that I didn't age out, which you do, you know, you age out in Hollywood. You know, 36, well, you had, you're about at the end. And well, you had lost 12 years yeah. of, of, you know, I prime, 12 prime territory. Yeah, I lost 12 years, I wanted them back. Exactly, it's totally understandable. Yeah. It's totally understandable. You're working with some of the most interesting talents that came out of the 70s. The Landlord with Bo Bridges, Neon Ceiling, Portnoy's Complaint. Well, that's the thing. To go from the 50s, which was my era, the era of the blacklist, to go into the 60s with hair, you know, Everything goes, anything goes, it's a democracy, it's freedom. Into the guys who studied film in the 60s and came out in the 70s, geniuses, who were taking over the film studios didn't know what to do, so the doors were open for Francis Coppola, for Hal Ashby, for Norman Jewison to absolutely redo film. They weren't movies. They were films. And so the work that I got to do, the kind of parts I played and the kind of people I worked with, it was just like the worst of times and the best of times. You know, I went from the worst of times to absolutely the best of times. But so you're living in the in Malibu, you've got all these incredible people, there's drugs and there's all kinds of stuff going on. You're living in the heyday of that. Uh, and you get to work with these amazing people. Well, you do two amazing films. I couldn't be more different. Each you got an Oscar nomination for, and then you finally won one. And the first one was Shampoo with Warren Beatty, and then Voyage of the Damned, for which you did receive another, your, I think, your fourth Oscar nomination. I know after this, you began to lose your interest in acting. And that's when you began your directing career. Well, it, it wasn't that I lost my interest. It was my sense that they were losing interest in me. Because I was, always had the feeling that I was a little bit of the hot girl. You know, that there would be something interesting that I would do that somebody, some other actress would not do. And what I got a feeling of, as I went to get the Oscar for Shampoo, was that I, I was coming to the end of something. And that was then I got a, a call from the uh, AFI asking if I knew any actresses who were interested in their first women's directing workshop. 
And I suggested someone, and then I called back and said, me. And I, I made a, a Strindberg film called The Stronger. And it's one of the, you know, great Strindberg pieces. Which one of these women is really the stronger? And of course, it's the one who doesn't say a word. The other one has this, oh, no, I'm this, I'm that, my husband, my children, my this, my that. I am wanted, wanted, wanted. And of course, the one who holds the power is the one who doesn't speak. And they gave me an award to do it on film in color, which led me to be sitting in a movie theater next to Barbara Koppel because we were in competition. My The Stronger and her Harlan County USA were in competition. And I'd never seen a documentary like that. I'd never seen the filmmaker be a part of this, this unfairness that she was a part of because the miners were being locked out and they were striking. And there was Barbara sitting next to me. But there she was saying, hi, good morning to the miners. I didn't know there was such a thing that, that filmmakers could be there, a part of the, the life of what they're filming. And it really changed my whole focus. That was something I really, I had had words taken away from me for so long. I was so afraid to express my opinion, afraid I'd be accused again of something, that this way of, of going into film, of talking to other people, having other people say what was happening, what was wrong, why they felt that, was this whole open theater to me now. And it just made me very excited. Barbara, interestingly enough, the, the second documentary that I made was Women in Prison. And Barbara said, I'll come and, and do the mic for you. And I said, Barbara, you, you're a great filmmaker. You can't come and do sound. Are you kidding? And she said, I'm a sound person. I want to work. It's a job. My kid was just bored. She had him in a cradle. She brought him in a cradle to the, to the women's prison. And she did sound. She's a hero. I love that story. She's a hero. She's just amazing. Let's talk about the documentaries. They were so far ahead of their time. You know, there are, a whole, there are about five or six documentaries that have a common thread. Yes. They're all about women and injustice. The projects that we were doing, Mary Beth Yarrow, who produced a lot of uh, the documentaries that we did, um, had a, an incident happen in her hometown in Wilmer, Minnesota, where seven women employed in the bank went on strike because the president of the bank would hire these boys to be trained by them to be their bosses. The whole situation was so, was so crazy to me that I said, let's do it. Let's go make a documentary there. Uh, Mary Beth had read it to me in the paper. And her husband at the time, Peter Yarrow, gave us money. And suddenly we were in Wilmer, Minnesota, in the ice cold. 
It was so cold that I couldn't ask questions of people on the street. My mouth couldn't fret. But those women, those seven women, were walking up and down in front of the back in, in that kind of cold, holding banners that said, you know, we won't train boys to be our bosses. And it opened up the world to me. I mean, that from then on was what I, first of all, it was injustice. It, it was injustice. And it was something that I had lived through that I could never claim. So you, I, found, you found yourself I in found another, another in, holy grail. In, yes, in all of these next situations that I went into, they were all on the part of people who couldn't speak for themselves, where I couldn't speak for myself. And so the kind of connection that I had with these people, with all of the people who, whose lives I went into, was so close to my own, and I had such a connection with what they were going through. Outsiders, battered women, down and out in America. Oh my down God, that was huge. Absolutely. Well, the, the connected to the Me Too movement, in battered, which I really hadn't thought was so powerful. I, I, I couldn't get over the braveness of these women to see what they were doing, to see what they were walking into, and to be beaten. It was, it was extraordinary. And, and the first one that I did after Wilma, which was going to the jail here, which what, was- When women kill. When women kill, was totally connected to battered women killed because they were being killed. And it, it was like a window opening. They were all there because somebody was trying to kill them. The documentaries tear open people's lives in the kind of fresh, truthful way that you will never see again. Those are moments in time that are the truth. And the documentaries went on many cases to make a difference. I mean, talk about what happened after Wilmer 8. I mean, it was shown around the country, and banks all over the country were changing their policies. I mean, how that must have been very rewarding. Well, it, to know, I mean, this, it didn't happen to these women who stood up and went on strike. But when the documentary was shown of their struggle and their lives, it made a, a total difference in banks across the country. So they could have that triumph in knowing that they changed the way, the way other people's lives were, if not theirs. I want to go back to age. Oh, yeah, okay. Are you now comfortable with your age? Yes, I am. How old are you? I am 91 years old. I thought I was 93. But my cousin Doris looked up my birth certificate and she gave me back two years. Are you sure about that? Yes, I am. Yes, I am, because I forgot when I was born. I lied so much that, that I'd forgotten when I was born. And I am. I'm 91. And it feels, it feels very wholesome for me to be able to say that without fear. So the it, age has been the curse 
and the blessing at the same time. Well, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. I'm 12 years older than my husband. You know, my first husband was 12 years. But I think that having to stay young for him um, has also been a force in my life. You know, I can't be an old lady 91. I've got to be a cute 91. You know, somebody who can get along with a kid, not 78 year old. <laughs> so, so it's funny. Uh, my father was uh, a very strong Polish Jew, was a bodybuilder. I mean, along with his intellectual Columbia graduate. But he was, and I find that I've inherited uh, my Polish father's kind of body and physical, physical aspects. That I'm a young 91 for 91. Um, but there it is. Two last things, we got the time. Proudest moments and biggest regrets. Proudest moments were with my daughter, Dinah Manoff, with my other daughter, Belinda Fioretti Jones, and her two daughters, one for me, Leah, and one for her grandma, Rachel, and the two boys, Desi and Oliver. I don't know what regrets I have. I, I don't uh, I don't think I have any regrets because because I threw myself into this uh, into this world and just went with it wherever it took me. I mean uh, we're gonna have to there's so much we didn't cover, but I think we have to stop now. Thank you very much. The American Masters podcast was created by Michael Cantor and is produced by Joe Skinner. And co-produced by Josh Hamilton with sound engineering by Josh Broom, Evan Joseph, and John Berman. For American Masters, we thank series producer Julie Sachs and associate producer Christiana Lombardo. Our theme music is by Infinity Shred. We'd also like to thank the American Masters interns for their contributions to this episode, Christina Darko and Giovanna Drummond. Thanks for listening. And please don't forget to give us a rating or a review and tell a friend about us or share a favorite episode. See you in a couple weeks.